New York Times is focused on taking an expansive view of its journalism. Its runaway hit podcast, The Daily, has encouraged The Times to expand into TV also with The Weekly, a news media program that airs on FX and Hulu. Sam Dolnick, who served on the launch team of The Daily, joined us this week to discuss the genesis of both The Daily and The Weekly, the challenges TV presents, and why you'll soon be able to watch The Weekly on The Times' own website. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here. Okay, so explain your shift from from being a reporter to your role now. Yeah, it was um, about five years ago when Dean Baquet took over. One of the first things he did was he realized, we all realized then, remember this is right after the innovation report, yeah. that our audience had shifted to mobile in a giant way and in a way that we hadn't been fully prepared for to be frank, we um, had just kind of made this seismic evolution from print to the desktop. And we were like, whew, okay, <laughs> made it. And then it was like, no, no, this is even bigger. And we weren't fully prepared for that. The newsroom wasn't quite ready or hadn't quite grappled with what that meant. And so one of the first things Dean said was, we need a mobile editor. And I don't really know what that job means. I don't have a job description for it. I just know we need an editor in the newsroom, somebody who's a journalist, who's thinking about how this is going to change things. So that was my job. I had been a reporter, an investigative reporter, a metro reporter. A, I think at that time I was a deputy sports editor. And Dean asked me to go figure out what this job was. And so from there, it kind of shifted to trying to think about how does our journalism need to change. Yeah. Oh, were you involved in NYT Now? Uh, I worked closely with a lot of those folks. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't officially on the team, but I was okay. Because I mean, that, that spun out right around right that, that exactly. That it was same time. it was part of that exact moment, and that was like sort of coming. I feel like the times of the, at that point after the innovation report was really just you know trying to figure out you know what products it it could you know use you know with its brand in order to to reach new audiences. Um, and and New York New York Times NYT now was an interesting experiment. Didn't work. NYT now didn't work on its own, right. but it paved the way for so many changes that we're still, you know, using today. Like that really was kind of the Trojan horse through which a lot of our digital first ways of thinking and working and writing came into the newsroom. Right. Um, and it got the times just like experimenting and doing exactly. new things, right? Um, talk about the daily and, and, you know, and Daily is the sort of runaway hit. I think you could put it up with, with Serial and maybe one other podcast yeah. as sort of, you know, putting podcasting on the map in its sort of second or third wave, I guess it is at this point. Um, how did it come about? Yeah, the, um, we never took podcasting particularly seriously at the times. It was kind of like blogs for us. A lot of desks had blogs and they were kind of fun and the desks kind of liked them. And a bunch of desks had podcasts, and they were kind of fun, and a bunch of the desks liked them. And around that time, I guess it was 20, what, 16 or so, um, a couple of us, me included, thought that we should take podcasts a lot more seriously. Um, and this was pro-serial, and this was, you know, this newsroom is teeming with stories. We got to figure out a way to tell them in audio. And in the old days, we would have said, hey, you're a good Metro editor. Now you should be in charge of podcasts. And... 
this was a moment we said, you know what? We don't know how to make great podcasts. Let's go find someone who does. Mm -hmm. So we did this big national search with this kind of grand question, what should the New York Times sound like? We posted that out there and got many hundreds of applications from audio producers all over the world and spent a long time, took it really seriously, interviewing people and hired this extraordinary young producer from Boston, from WBUR, Lisa Tobin. And she, she was the first person we hired and we brought her in and from there, she taught the building how to think in audio. Mm -hmm. Remember, we started with um, a political podcast. This was during the 2016 campaign called The Run-Up. And we, uh, we needed a host for it. And we looked across the political team. I used to sit next to Michael Barbaro. And he's kind of fun and funny and has kind of a wicked sense of humor and a really smart, fluent reporter. When you heard him on the phone, did you think? That's that's a good radio voice. He's he's the kind of guy he's like he's fun to talk to. He <laughs> okay. um he had a certain certain thing, and um, Lisa watched a bunch of YouTube videos of him and got coffee with him and said, "Yeah, let's try it." And so we made this little political podcast, just kind of on a dime. We launched it probably within less than a month of her first day in the office, and um, the two of them really kind of started working on this new audio language. And the run up was. The, the first podcast of the modern era that led to then The Daily. Okay, so why do you think The Daily works so well? I mean, obviously, The Times is a gigantic brand, and, yep. and that certainly helps. Yeah. Um, but why do you think it worked as well as it did? Yeah, it's, um, it's kind of magic. It's kind of lightning in a bottle, and you couldn't engineer it quite. I think the lessons for us, I, I, I think that a big one was The New York Times... We thought of the place forever as we've got a lot of reporters and reporters produce newspaper stories. And that's kind of what it works. That's how, that's how it works. The Daily has shown us that we've got a lot of reporters. And yes, they, report, they produce newspaper stories. But even more important, they have expertise. Mm -hmm. They know stuff. And The Daily figured out your newspaper story, that's often not the most important thing. It's like what you know, what you saw yesterday, that's what I want to hear. And so it taps into that expertise in a, in a human way that is much more engaging, frankly, than the conventions of newspaper reporting. Yeah, because it kind of makes the reporters characters to some degree, right? Exactly. Because I mean, they're recurring characters. You know? They're recurring characters, and there's something... Michael Schmidt is a recurring character. And that funny, slow way that he talks yeah. has become kind of iconic and recognizable. And you can connect with that in a way that you can't quite with a Michael Schmidt on the page. And I think that that human connection is is important, but it's not just that, because lots of places have reporters on, on the microphone. I think that it's the audio producer's sense of, of narrative. You know, if you go back and diagnose a daily episode, so many of them say, okay, let's start at the beginning. You know, it's not what happened yesterday. It's let's unspool this thing and turning things like, you know, NATO into a narrative. Like, wait, what is NATO again? And when right. did it start? Like that kind of storytelling approach combined with fancy production levels that are fun and these reporters' expertise. And you can't understate Michael Barbaro's magnetism. All of that adds up into something that feels quite special. So explain then how that led to The Weekly. And, and because, I mean, The Weekly grew out of The Daily. I, I talk about it. There's a spiritual connection between yes. the two. Um, there, it's completely separate teams and separate mediums and separate lessons. Right, but that experience had to inform. Oh, no, 100%. Okay. And the, the Daily, and that's partly why it's the naming convention worked that way. The Daily was, for a lot of us, kind of 
like a lightning bolt. This is the modern New York Times. This is the DNA, the rigor, the ambition, the excellence of the New York Times as we like to think of our report in a modern new way. It taps into what these reporters know. And we w- thought we could do that again. We thought we could do it visually, that we, we've got reporters in all of these crazy places around the world. And there's a way to take viewers there in a visceral way that similarly has the DNA of the reporting. It's built on the reporting, but it's kind of channeling it and showcasing it in a different way. So it's, th- so it's that kind of the same insight that made the daily work is what we've tried to bring to the weekly. Mm-hmm. Was TV the starting point or was it really just exploring for ways to go, you know, to find new expressions for the journalism? It, w- it was visuals. It was the sense that, you know, yeah. we can bring with audio, we can bring you into uh, Rukmini Kalamachi's interview with an ISIS militant. And that's visceral. You want to hear it. But she's also going to Mosul and going through rubble-strewn buildings. And as powerful as audio is, you want to see some of that stuff. And it felt like we were leaving all of this great reporting and experiences on the cutting room floor with just audio and just print. So we just wanted a visual way to tell that story. And then you know better than anyone what's happening in TV, the like explosive creativity of new forms and new platforms and new mm-hmm. binge watching. We felt like we could be a part of it. So it was a good timing. I mean, just like the, the Daily, I mean, it succeeded for a lot of reasons, but timing was probably... You know, one of them. I mean, timing, riding the podcast boom, but also the news boom. Like, we say the Daily was born of an emergency. Like, it it launched in February 2017 within weeks of Trump taking office. Like, this was a moment when people wanted to know the news in a way that they never had before. And had the Daily launched at a different moment in our political life, I don't think it would have hit the same way. So... What were some other ideas, though, for the New York Times expressing itself visually? Visually? Yeah. Some people come up with some... Sure, some we had a million ideas. ideas. I mean, there was there were more conventional ideas, like we should have a modern anchor who sits behind a desk okay. and takes you through the headlines. But no, like, animated series or anything. I, I, you know what? I hope we do some animated <laughs> okay. series. All right. Yeah, I mean, The Weekly is our first and our biggest uh, television show, but I think there's a lot more stories to tell visually, and we're we're trying to push on a bunch of them. Okay. Um, so explain a little bit, though, the actual process. Um, because, I mean, you know, going into TV, I'm sure you'd look for an organization of the Times, and the Times did, you know, own, I guess, TV uh, station a little bit. A whole bit channel, yeah. yeah. So it's not exactly new TV, but you need, like, you know, a production company, and you're going to have to yeah. figure out distribution. Yeah. Go through the entire process, because yeah. I think it's a little bit more of a lift than setting up a podcast? Oh my God. I didn't quite realize how much more of a lift it was. Um, TV is a huge machine. And so a bunch of us had this thought that there's something we should be doing in TV, that there's an opportunity here to tell visual stories. And we pretty quickly realized that we couldn't do it ourselves. In audio, we thought we could. We'd hire a producer, start with one, and build a team around her and keep going. Um, Television... Uh, it's just such a big machine from, you know, directors of photography to editors to DPs to assistant. You know, it's just a huge thing that we thought building that from scratch would take forever and was probably unnecessary. There are production companies that can do this. Yeah. So the first thing we did was cast about for the right production company. And we pretty quickly were introduced to Left Right, a production company on 19th Street here in New York City that had made a bunch of shows that we admired. They made The Circus on Showtime, mm-hmm. which 
is kind of a modern political show that comes together so fast it almost feels like magic. It's, you know, Trump does something on Wednesday and Sunday night there's, it's not a news story about it. It's like a movie about Trump. It's like quite cinematic in a way that we really liked. And they had a decade ago made the This American Life TV show, which I think was ahead of its time and was actually really good and would have been a, a hit in the streaming era. Um, but they th- were quite thoughtful about what's the DNA of this non-visual mm-hmm. program and how to do it. So we got in a room with the folks from Left Right, really like them. And then this. What is the division of labor? Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, but no. like, what is the division of labor then? Because I mean, I, I imagine this is new for the Times. And the Times is used to, it's not like, it's dealing with third parties when it's doing its its reporting and stuff. But to be creating this, um, obviously, it's the New York Times product. Yeah. Um, but the production of it, you know, influences it quite a bit. Hugely, it's this um, kind of fused machine now, and it took a year or so to build it that way. But we've got a team of editors at the Times. It's a mix of veteran New York Times editors and new journalists that we've hired for this who live in the New York Times newsroom and are meeting all day with reporters and editors and trying to figure out what are people working Mm -hmm. on and what are big stories coming. And then Left Right has a dedicated team at the Weekly of producers and cinematographers and video editors who are technically on the left-right staff, but we think of as all part of the Weekly team. So their producers are in our newsroom. They're in the building. Often. I mean, sometimes the the editing bays are all at left-right. So it's this kind of... We're spending a lot of time on the one train going back and forth between their offices and ours. And our editors spend time in their offices. Their editors spend time in ours. But it's this kind of collaborative medium where the story ideas start with the times. It's, you know, our editors saying the business desk has this big investigation going. We can jump Mm -hmm. in it on here. Here's what the reporting looks like. And then a producer who, you know, we've hired a team from... Vice News and some who have made their own documentaries and some who have worked in 60 Minutes and Frontline and all across the industry. So it's a mix of like Times veterans and people that you brought in from the outside. Because it's important, I would assume, to have, look, the people who are really good journalists are just really good journalists, I would guess. Like they can flex that into a TV form. That's a big part of the bet, though it is really a different language. Um, And the TV producers are very savvy about Sure, that's going to be a great investigation. It is not an investigation for TV. We're going to pass on that one. So it's kind of a constant running dialogue between our editors and theirs about what are the right kinds of stories that we should tell. And then, you know, producer goes out and spends three weeks in the field and comes back with a first draft and a bunch of New York Times editors, a bunch of left-right editors. We all sit together and watch it and critique and edit and suggest and kind of work it through until it's done. Mm-hmm. So talk about the, the decision to go with FX and Hulu's distribution, at least yeah. initially. Yeah. It was um, – so we had this idea. We spent many months, six months maybe, fully on the New York Times' dime piloting the show like it, to see if is there or there there. Before we even went to Los Angeles, we worked with Left Right, put cameras in the field, and tried to make a couple of stories that we thought proved the idea that there is a television show that we could do. Which was unusual. We could have just probably tried to sell it on an idea, but we didn't want to do that. We wanted to make a pilot and fund it ourselves just to see, is this worth our time? We decided it was. We liked the stuff that we were making. So then we went to Los Angeles and did the thing, did the rounds. We went to Amazon and HBO and Hulu and Netflix and Showtime, did six or seven of them all in 48 hours. Um, And FX, to be clear, was 
not on our radar. Like, I did not expect to even be interested in FX. They do, I admire their shows. We watch Atlanta and The Americans and The O.J. Simpson Show. I love their stuff, but they don't do news. They don't do documentaries. They don't do that. Um, But we are excited to be in this, to meet with them with Atlanta posters on the wall and stuff. That's cool. (laughs) So we went in and um, did our spiel, which was showing a bunch of the clips that we had made and did, you know, uh, a notion about how this is the, the new New York Times and here's what we're after. And... It was a really good conversation. You could see that the FX executives got it and understood what we were trying to do really quickly. And then they kind of turned the tables and John Landgraf, you should have him on the show if you haven't. He's um, the head of FX and is a quite formidable and savvy leader and television executive. He kind of flipped it and he said, FX has never done a show like this. I never thought we should do a show like this. But I'm saying right now here in the room, we're going to do the show and you're going to do the show with us. It should be on FX. And his pitch was, I know you're out here probably talking to HBO and Netflix and Showtime. And we were, we had just come from their offices. And he said, you could go with them, but then you're reaching New York Times people. You've already got the people who are watching HBO. Who are the FX people? FX people are in 90 million homes. FX people are, as, as, as they describe their demographic, people who are still watching cable. These are the people who have not cut the cord yet. These are people who are across the country. These are a really different mix socioeconomically who are not New York Times people. They, it's not that they hate the New York Times. They don't think of the New York Times. They've never heard of the Daily. They don't know Michael Barbar. This is a new audience, the people who watch their Ryan Murphy shows who watch their, who watch Atlanta. Mm-hmm. They said, the point of this show is to bring the Times journalism to a new audience and to make them care about the stories that you care about and introduce them to your kind of journalism. And they said, this place has a broader reach than any of the others. Why was that important strategically? I mean, particularly, I, th- I feel like with the Times with, with its mission, particularly around um, subscriptions, um, you end up, you end up, sort of doubling down on your core. And I think if there's like a knock, it's that, well, you know, the New York Times has doubled down on its core around, you know, finest getting painted as the resistance to Trump and stuff like this. But you can see anytime, anytime you guys write a story that's like somewhat, uh, you know, not uh, uh, anti-Trump, you get all these people like saying, I'm canceling, I'm canceling. Yeah. That's the flip side of mm-hmm. every business model has its downsides. <laughs> yeah. Um, we aren't... I mean, I would think the New York Times, is, I mean, everyone, it... it Maybe it's just, you know, living in New York. Like, I would think, like, you know, it reaches everyone and stuff like this. Yeah, it does. I mean, we have a giant audience of people who visit the homepage, but it's not everyone. And it should be bigger. And, you know, Mark Thompson, our CEO, has said publicly, you know, we need to get to 10 million digital subscribers. We've got a long ways to go. You know, we're at, what, four and a half all in? We want to double that. It's a good that. start. It's, we're, we're pleased, but there's work <laughs> to do. And the way we think we're going to get there is by reaching lots of people who don't think that they are New York Times people. Yeah. And so to does, that, does that feed into the subscriptions strategically at some level? Because, I mean, the whole organization is seemingly, from the outside, organized around this idea of consumer revenue and, you know, being supported mm-hmm. by by its, its customers. Its mm-hmm. customers, its audience, it should be the same rather than just the advertisers. Um, but how does this then play into that? I mean, the daily drives subscriptions, um, but how does this... The Daily is a big advertising business now, yeah. and we think that it builds 
crazy loyalty. We see that people, once you listen to The Daily, you're listening multiple times a month, multiple times a week. It's now part of your life. And then the trick is, okay, how do you get them to go from subscribing to a podcast to subscribing to The Times? And you've heard we've started doing producers on the on the daily explaining the way to support this show is by subscribing to the times yes. we've got a newsletter and that, that works w- it is working <laughs> we've got a newsletter that you know tries to get people who listen to the daily to now get the daily in their inbox to click on a link we think that if we cast a big wide net then we can figure out how to build that bridge back towards our platform okay, so this is top of the funnel stuff this is top of the funnel stuff this is like finding a new audience and then the work is bringing bringing them in bringing them down the funnel okay so similar here with the weekly yeah i think the daily and the weekly from that lens are similar strategically one thing on podcasting is the long tail right i think the daily is it's obviously it's a runaway hit right um but that doesn't mean that there's gonna be a thousand dailies right yeah it's um I think it's a once-in-a-generation kind of hit. Um, and I think that the idea w- of trying... So you're not looking to, like, spin up, like, dozens of, of these podcasts? Yeah, we're not looking to do dozens of these podcasts. Um, we th- There's more... Right now, we've got you for 20 minutes a day, right? 20, like, sterling, shining like a diamond minutes a day. I don't think that's the limit. I think that our newsroom has more stories that want to be told in audio... But I'm not convinced that the way to do that is to launch a whole bunch of other shows with a whole bunch of other hosts and their own mm. feeds. And, you know, to your point about the long tail, I, I, I don't see that as I don't think we can make another show as big as the daily. And I don't know if that's the right thing to try. But I do think there are more stories to tell in audio. So I think that's the needle to try and thread. Right, But to have a few franchises, it would seem to be like the way to go. Exactly. To have, Do you get a lot of people in the newsroom who like now want their own podcast? Every person in the newsroom wants their own <laughs> podcast. There's something about audio and journals. Everyone thinks that they're the best raconteur, the best interviewer. Everyone thinks that they're the next Michael Barbaro. So explain just um, from the content side, deciding to have the reporters kind of be stars. Because I, I can see it going both ways. Right? Yeah. I mean, the New York Times reporters are it's it, the best asset. And I would think that the daily has proven that the, they can you mm-hmm. know, flex into um, different different media. At the same time, I don't know if you know this, but reporters can sometimes be a little <laughs> um, obsessed with reporting and, and find themselves more interesting yeah. than maybe non-reporters do. Yes, yes. That, and find the process of reporting to be more interesting maybe than, yeah. than uh, a lot of other people. Yeah. Like how do you avoid being like too like high on your own supply? We're, that's the right question. We think about that a lot. Um, we are not interested in a process show. You know, I don't think the process of reporting, how did you find that story? How did you report that story? How did you get that story in the paper? That is not what we are doing. You know, we did, during the early days of the Trump administration, um, documentarians wanted to live in the New York Times newsroom and document yeah. this moment. It was called The Fourth Estate, and it was on Showtime, directed by Liz Garbus, an amazing director. And that was, you know her project we were the subject of it we didn't have any control and that was a process film um and we're proud of that that was great you know that documented a singular moment in history people should watch that for years to come but that's not what we wanted to make we don't want to make a story about ourselves we wanted to make films episodes about the stories we think that our reporters are the best narrators for it 
you know, in those early piloting days, we tried to have an anchor, some kind of all-knowing person. This week, we go to Mosul. <laughs> and it just felt so wooden and stilted. Yeah. Like, why is that guy talking about Rukmini's story? It's her story. Let her tell it. And so we, once we, like, got rid of that idea of the host, it kind of came alive. And we talk all the time about that balance of are we too, are we looking are we navel gazing here or are we telling the story of ourselves or are we telling the story of the thing and we always want to be tilted towards the story itself you know if we've got if if it feels processy to you then we've got that balance wrong because yeah. we're trying to look out not in but we think that our reporters who are reporting the story are the best narrators for that but you don't want them to be characters um i'm thinking of vice now <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about characters. I mean, we don't want them to distract from the story, but, you know, I think that some of them are characters. I mean, Rukmini's, like, I keep talking about Rukmini, but her, like, intensity and obsession with the story that she's chasing, like, it's compelling, and that's part of it. And I think we've seen that in a handful of episodes. And so we're early on the weekly. Mm -hmm. You know, we're halfway through our first season. I don't think we've settled on the precise language or format. We're trying some episodes now where the reporter doesn't appear at all. Some episodes where it's not narrated by a reporter. It's narrated by a subject. And I think, I'm hoping that the the weekly will have that kind of uh, capacity, a capaciousness that it can contain lots of different things. How big is the audience? The audience? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a brand new show and it's growing. But we've, we're averaging about 1.3, 1.4 million people per episode. And that's people who... I always ask when people say statistics, is that good? And that's the thing, like, this is brand new for us. <laughs> okay. So, like, is it good? We've never made a TV show before. It's 1.4 um, million than you had before, I guess. Yeah, and, and the way they actually, TV counts these numbers um, more honestly than the web, that's 1.4 million people who have watched the whole thing, 30 yeah. minutes of it. So, a million and a half people are spending 30 minutes a, a week with New York Times journalism, like, that feels pretty exciting. So, going with you know, one or two distribution partners has its downsides. You know, everyone goes to the New York, not everyone, but you get a lot of people who go to the New York Times dot com. And is it going to move there? We are going to be posting some weekly episodes on nytimes.com. We're trying to figure out the right moment, which episodes and when. But yeah, we haven't done that yet, but we're excited to. And we think that we can send episodes to New York Times subscribers, and they may not subscribe to FX or Hulu, they may not know about our show, they may not have seen it, but we think they're going to like it. Have you done research about subscribers, even, like, awareness? Because, I mean, I think a lot of times um, people assume that, like, you know, that that everyone knows, um, but they might not know about The Weekly. I mean, obviously, you promote it on the homepage and in the app. Yeah, I mean, FX is a really good marketer, and they did a big, giant campaign when the show launched, and they've done another halfway through the season, and we're doing a lot. But I think you're totally right. I mean, in this mm-hmm. noisy world, how does anything break through? So we're constantly looking for ways to tell the story and make people aware of it. So what other areas are you looking at as being interesting to to express the Times journalism in? I mean, I know you were involved in some of the VR stuff. Yeah. I feel like people are st- talking less about their VR strategies. It didn't, it didn't, I think the technology isn't there yet. Yeah. 
it hasn't gone mainstream yet. I think it's it's actually, I, I think it will. There's something to that immersive thing, but the headset thing, until they get past that, I don't think it's going to really catch on. Yeah, I mean, when, when there's like, you know, viral photos of someone actually wearing a headset on a subway, I mean, that's not a good sign for sort of mainstream adoption. Yeah, I think the tech... That's com- that remarkable. Right. Someone's actually someone. using it. No, I think the tech companies, and I bet they will, will have to figure out something where you press a button on the phone and all of a sudden you're in the thing. But it's I don't think it's there yet. But there's audio, there's, yeah. there's TV, video, OTT, wherever it's expressed. Yeah. Any other sort of, I guess Facebook will call them surfaces, but any other areas that you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Broadway shows. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I've, already, I've, already, I've already put the cartoon out there. Yeah, the cartoon could be good. I mean, we are <laughs> um, ambitious in TV and film. We've got on, in a couple weeks, later this month, our first scripted project going on Amazon, Amazon's Modern Love. So that's the John Carney, screenwriter, director, worked with our Modern Love team, chose eight Modern Love articles from the archives, and then wrote, adapted them for for the screen. And Amazon did an amazing job casting. So one of them is, you know, Tina Fey and John Slattery are a bickering couple on the therapist couch. And the next episode, Dev Patel and Catherine Keener are an unlikely couple that gets together. The next one, Anne Hathaway is a lonely woman in New York City. So it's that... uh, the, I think the TV word is anthology, mm-hmm. where different stars in every episode. But it's our first kind of experiment in the world of scripted and fiction territory. Um, and I think it's really good. I think people are really going to like it. And again, to your point about strategy, my hope, Amazon's belief, is that a lot of people are going to watch an Anne Hathaway episode of Modern Love. Mm-hmm. They don't know Modern Love, but they will then... Google Modern Love and see, oh my God, there's 15 years worth of these stories and there's a podcast of Modern Love and there's a newsletter and then you start to bring them so into our So eventually that comes down to subscriptions. That's the belief. I mean, because ads can support all of this, but it seems like the, the I mean, the entire organization oh, yeah. is around, you know, consumer revenue. Yeah, we think there's a lot of people who will be New York Times people who don't know it yet. Yeah. And so our goal is to try and figure out a bunch of different ways to hook them and introduce them to the stuff that we do and then introduce them to all the other things. Yeah. So watch Modern Love, now read it, then here's a magazine story, here's a crossword puzzle, here's a recipe, here's Trump's latest story, and then we've got them. I don't know if it's your area, but what about these, you know, audio with podcasts and and these kind of projects that are subscription only? Um, I mean, there's some technical problems with that. Um we had one. We just had a publishing summit, and and uh, the CEO of, of Slate predicted that at least at least one episode a week of the Daily will be subscriber only in 2020. Oh that's, wow, that's the prediction. Oh, oh, okay. I, I I like that people are predicting these things. Um, <laughs> I think there's something there. I mean, the Daily is the front page for us. It is the modern A1, and we think that should be available to everyone. Yeah. Right, two million people a day listen to it. I don't think that's the ceiling at all. How high could it be? We want to try and find out. But other audio projects, could they be subscriber only, subscriber first? Yeah, I could totally picture that. And I think the next couple of years are going to be experimenting with that kind of thing. And you're seeing other platforms start to play around with yeah. that too. Okay. Sam, thanks so much. Yeah, it's fun talking with you. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Pierre Bienname who produced this podcast. Please leave us a review and rate this podcast wherever you listen to it. Thank you.